I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Will Hahn from Shearman and Sterling. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Will. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. So first, let's hit some of the SCOTUS headlines of the week. Justice Brett Kavanaugh is joining the faculty at my alma mater, George Mason Scalia Law School. He's set to teach a class about the creation of the Constitution this summer with his former law clerk and Mason professor, Jennifer Mascott. The course will take place in Runnymede, England, where Magna Carta was sealed more than 800 years ago. And for a second year, Justice Neil Gorsuch will teach a summer class with his former law clerk and Mason professor, Jamil Jaffer. Students will travel to Padua, Italy, to learn about the separation of powers in the national security context. So, Dean Butler, if you're listening, can I come back and audit a few classes? (laughs) I wish we had those sorts of classes when I was there. Uh, In other news, Sam Adams Brewery is now making a beer in honor of the notorious RBG. It's a Belgian brute IPA called When There Are Nine. The name is a nod to Justice Ginsburg's answer to a question she receives pretty pretty often about when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court. It's a limited release beer that is available starting this week. And this is truly bringing together two of my great loves, beer and the Supreme Court. Turning to this week's oral arguments, there are two that I'd like to discuss. Uh, first up is the partisan gerrymandering cases out of Maryland and North Carolina. The question here is how much politics is too much when it comes to drawing district lines? And is this even something the courts should be involved in? So just by way of background, partisan politics have been part and parcel of the redistricting process basically since the founding of our country. And, and the, the framers of the Constitution committed the, the task of drawing up district lines to state legislatures with the supervision of Congress. So two directly accountable bodies that are accountable to the people and not to federal courts. Now, this isn't the first time the Supreme Court has heard cases raising partisan gerrymandering claims uh, 15 years ago in a case out of Pennsylvania called Viath versus Jubilee, the court said that this was a political question and they they weren't going to get into it. Uh, but in a concurring opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy left the door ajar for future challenges, suggesting that, you know, maybe the courts could hear these cases if a judicially discernible and manageable standard could be found. Well, it's been 15 years and no such standard has been found. The court heard two partisan gerrymandering cases last term and uh, and kicked them back to the lower courts uh, for procedural reasons. And, and now uh, the North Carolina and Maryland cases are at the court uh, this term. So, Will, how do you think the oral argument went? You know, I think it um, it demonstrates just the difficulties in trying to draw a line around what exactly is too much politics for purposes of the Constitution. Our Constitution, as you know, has uh, remedies that presume that the people are going to rule and the people are going to be in charge. And both North Carolina and Maryland are great examples where even in some of the most allegedly gerrymandered districts or areas, the proof that the candidates matter came out in subsequent elections where you would have very like a very blue district in Maryland, for example, that Larry Hogan ends up winning as a and he's now a Republican and a Republican governor of Maryland and is going to have considerable involvement in the redistricting process uh, that Maryland's undertaking. So 
I think the oral argument kind of demonstrated just the difficulties in drawing this kind of line and the principle that the court is sort of struggling to try to find. I think some justices think there might be a principle. I think a significant number of the justices demonstrate that there really isn't much of one and that it largely is a political matter. And it's not an accident that a lot of these prior cases have been resolved on justiciability grounds because there's so there's such a difficulty in even teeing up what is quintessentially a political question. I think the oral argument demonstrated the justices kind of struggling with that. Yeah, and I think a lot of eyes were on Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, since, You're right. since he yes. is the, the newest member and uh, it's his first time hearing uh, one of these cases at the Supreme Court. He and Neil Gorsuch both brought up the fact that states can fix this problem if they think it's a problem. Uh, right. Justice Gorsuch pointed out that you know his home state of Colorado just had a ballot initiative dealing with partisan gerrymandering during the last election. And he and Kavanaugh, you know, seem to the fact that they seem to identify there are remedies for states that think this is a problem would seem to show that maybe they think the court shouldn't be involved. Uh, but I think that, you know, Kavanaugh was trying to keep the cards close to his chest uh, in the argument. I think that's right. Although, you know, I to, to echo your point, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, mentioned to Allison Riggs, who argued for some of the North Carolina challengers, that, you know, he said, I, you know, I understand your argument is that partisan gerrymandering is a problem for democracy. Um, but he then referenced activity in the states and in Congress to combat the issue. And so it sort of raises the question of why does the court have to be involved? And that's a sort of classic it's a classic Justice Kavanaugh question, I think, <laughs> even back to Judge Kavanaugh, but all, because he would always say on the D.C. Circuit, you know, the, ca- the question that's at the core of every case is who decides, mm-hmm. you know, who makes the decision. And that's the question that goes to our structure of government. And you, you have to ask the question here, OK, well, other actors within our governmental structure, the states, Congress, they are acting to address this perceived issue. And the people, too, by referenda, can can act to address the issue. So why does the court have to act? And it's not simply the court just not wanting to be involved, but there are unique aspects to a, a judicial decision that uh, play out when you insert the court into the political process. I mean, we've observed in a variety of areas of con law over the years where the courts take decisions away from the people, and this ultimately produces problems for democracy. It perverts and distorts the political debate. And it would be really hard to say that that wouldn't be true in the context of partisan gerrymandering, because what is more political than allocating political offices? (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, we'll see. I bet this is going to be one of those, you know, decisions that won't come out until the final week of June, the the very end of the term. So turning to another oral argument from this week, uh, this is a case looking at agency deference, Kaiser versus Wilkie. So the court has been asked to overrule cases from 1997 and 1944 uh, called Our and Seminole Rock that require judges to defer to the reasonable interpretations of administrative agency officials when they are construing their own ambiguous regulations. So the case involves a Vietnam veteran who is seeking disability benefits from the VA for PTSD uh, that he says he's suffered since the 1980s. 
And he disagrees with the VA's interpretation of a regulation dealing with retroactive benefits. So he was originally denied benefits in the 80s, and he uh, he sought to have his claim reopened. Two decades later, the VA said, yeah, we're going to give you those benefits, but we're reading this regulation, and we say that you don't get retroactive benefits back to the 1980s. Uh, he disagrees. Obviously, he, he wants the money. <laughs> so he went to court, and the lower court said, you know, both Mr. Kaiser and the VA have reasonable interpretations of this regulation. So the VA wins because of our and Seminole Rock. So several of the Supreme Court justices have expressed concerns about this doctrine, this deference doctrine, and a related one called Chevron deference, which deals with the interpretation of statutes rather than regulations. So that was the oral argument in that case this week. And Will, I'd love to hear your initial thoughts on how that went. Sure. You know, I I was really struck by how so many justices, particularly on the conservative side, were really grappling with what to do with mm-hmm. our. Uh, it's very it's been very common, as I'm certain you've observed too, uh, to to see many conservative and libertarian lawyers, legal scholars, law professors be sort of reflexively critical of all of these deference doctrines and just kind of cast a broad net and say a pox on all your houses. You're all (laughs) terrible. You're all, you know, taking away the judicial power. Um, This is an erosion of our separation of powers. And it was very interesting to see Justice Gorsuch say to Solicitor General Francisco, well, so you want to replace our, but you want to replace it with like a six-part test. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and to see Justice Kavanaugh say, well, you know, wouldn't there have been more notice and comment if, say, it, lower courts hadn't made notice and comments so hard? Sort of like, look, there is supposed to be a process, but we've gummed it up so much that um, agencies are doing kind of a, a sort of rational response of just trying to do something that is fair and reasonable. And that, and even the chief, too, was making comments about how, well, there are tools that exist to police agency abuse. Mm-hmm. The fact that courts don't use them or that they're manipulating them, that's its, that's its own problem, but it's maybe perhaps unique from the deference doctrines. And I think that that was an interesting series of exchanges to me because um, a lot of people think, and certainly there was a recent opinion from Justice Gorsuch in a case where, you know, there are a number of immigration cases that have come out recently where uh, Chevron normally would play some kind of role. And Justice Gorsuch said recently in a case, notice how the majority is not even citing Chevron. They just presume (laughs) it's dead. Um, And then there was the case last term where Justice Alito was the only dissenter and had really lambasted the court for not even mentioning Chevron at all. Um, And you begin to wonder if the justices understand the criticisms of these deference doctrines. Maybe they even agree with some of them. But figuring out what to do in their place is harder than it might seem. I mean, one answer that's often bandied about, particularly with respect to our, is, oh, well, if you get rid of our, we can just have Skidmore deference. Mm-hmm. And Justice Kavanaugh interjected, well, that's not really deference. All Skidmore says is, well, if their interpretation's persuasive, we agree with it. But that's true <laughs> of everything in a brief. If if your argument's persuasive, we agree with it. If it's not persuasive, we discard it. Um, how is that really any kind of deference? And Justice Sotomayor 
I think, correctly pointed out that if you go back to the 19th century, there were a number of cases where courts suggested that they were giving some kind of deference or at least acknowledgement to a congressional decision to vest a certain decision within an agency. Now, ours is a little different because unlike Chevron, where Congress is vesting agencies with this authority, agencies are just kind of interpreting their own regulations and coming up with their own processes for doing so. So there's less of a theoretical check than Chevron might raise. Um, And then obviously the APA language would pose its own problems for our, but it does suggest that the that the court, I think, is really struggling with. We understand that these doctrines have been abused. We understand why people are critical of them, but we're not really sure what to do in their place. And and that some of the initial things that led to their creation and some of their initial premises, they aren't necessarily a problem or they're just endemic to our system. And we're not going to get rid of them, even if we get rid of the doctrines. And so maybe we can come up with a test that's more responsive to them, but we're not going to get rid of them. One other point similar to that was there was a lot of division between, and Justice Breyer was trying to make this thing about active moieties in the <laughs> FDA and, and how technical that is. Yeah. And don't judge us. We don't know anything about that. And that's true. And and then Justice Alito asked a question about like, well, who knows better about what the word relevant means, you know, a judge or or an agency. And that demonstrates a tension, too, between there really are some technical questions mm-hmm. that judges really, I mean, they're they're generalists by nature, and they're not going to have that kind of knowledge or inclination, frankly. Um, but uh, these doctrines aren't limited to just those kinds of technical questions. They apply to purely matter, pure matters of statutory interpretation, and that raises the criticism of why judges, why are judges sort of releasing their um, their obligation, their ability to interpret statutes as they would in any other case, uh, just because an agency is involved. So it's a, there are a lot of tensions, and I think that the court was really uncertain as to how to kind of resolve them definitively. And the idea of overturning, you know, several cases from the past several decades without a clear idea in response, it seemed like there were some justices prepared to do that, but there were many who were kind of wrestling with it. Mm-hmm. And Justice Alana Kagan, who's become the the poster child for stare decisis uh, in the last couple terms. Uh, she was really concerned about, you know, potentially overruling this 75-year-old decision, uh, the the Seminole Rock decision, which yes. uh, came from 1944. But the lawyer for Mr. Kaiser said, you know, look, if we if we look at the the traditional guideposts that judges look at, you know, in in the Supreme Court looks at in in deciding whether or not to uh, overturn a past case, you know, what we have here is. You know, the underlying issue stems from a, a judge-made rule, and, and the court ought to fix the problem because, you know, this mm-hmm. doctrine injects a considerable amount of instability into the legal system uh, because, you know, it, it sort of relies on the whims of agency officials uh, that can change their interpretations of, of regulations, of their own regulations. Uh, and that, you know, he also pointed out that th- this doctrine had never been reconciled with the administrative Procedure Act, which was uh, Congress passed just two years after the Seminole Rock decision. And, you know, and that, of course, sets up the public notice and comment period before agencies can can issue new or revised rules. And it also makes clear that judges are supposed to decide, uh, it says, shall decide all relevant questions of law. 
And so that, you know, there's some tension there with our and Seminole Rock and, and the Administrative Procedure Act. One, one final thing that I thought was, was kind of interesting, Justice Brett Kavanaugh has, uh, he's written and spoken a lot about the problem of ambiguity and that that's what really sets off whether or not an agency is going to get deference is, well, is the language that we're looking at ambiguous to begin with? And, you know, sort of his, his standard line is that ambiguity is in the eye of the beholder. Right. Uh, and he points out that, you know, but judges disagree all the time on this threshold question about whether something is am- ambiguous to, to begin with. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see what what happens with this one. You know, uh, SCOTUS watchers, I think, have been waiting for a Chevron deference challenge or an hour seminal rock challenge to come to the court. You know, there have been a number of petitions on both of these doctrines in recent years. And so it was, uh, you know, exciting for the court to finally take one up. And, you know, there have been a number of um, concurring opinions and dissenting opinions where uh a number of the justices have expressed their their criticism of these doctrines, uh, but I think you're right that they were really grappling with what comes in the wake of of Seminole Rock and Hour. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to yeah. see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's sort of available to the court, and it may be something that's already been happening already, although maybe not necessarily acknowledged, is that there's one way to view Chevron and Hour, both of them, as merely just canons of construction as opposed to sort of like precedents that you have to go revisit and overrule. No one's suggesting necessarily that like the factual result in these cases needs to be revisited. That's not what people necessarily mean when they say these cases should be overruled. Uh, They really mean that the rules of construction, of construing statutes or construing regulations in the case of our, should be revisited. And if they are just rules of construction, then you can apply them or not apply them as you, the judge, considers to be relevant. And in a way, I think that may already be what's effectively happening. I mean, the example I always point to in the Chevron context is Massachusetts versus EPA. There, you had the EPA, you have a, the Clean Air Act, which doesn't include greenhouse gas emissions within the definition of air pollutant in its plain text. And the definition of air pollutant itself is ambiguous because it can mean different things in different contexts of the statute as applied to different sources. The EPA made a judgment that for a variety of reasons, which it explained, greenhouse gas emissions would not fit the definition of air pollutant in the act. And nevertheless, as we know, when the court gets uh, messages versus EPA, they said, oh, well, actually it does. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and in the dissenting opinions, including you know, from Justice Scalia, I mean, there's this whole discussion about where's Chevron? I'm, you know, EPA made a decision. It made a judgment. It explained its reasons and an ambiguous statutory provision. And the court saying the term is ambiguous. In a normal Chevron world, we would say, oh, well, EPA gets deference. Um, but nevertheless, the court stepped in and expanded the Clean Air Act um, to, to include greenhouse gas emissions. And there are other instances in administrative law, too, where, in fact, it wasn't until 2011 where the court had to confirm that the Chevron doctrines even apply to IRS regulations. I mean, this is how people get taxed. Yeah. <laughs> this is a pretty significant thing. It applies to everybody. Um, but it wasn't until 2011 that uh, the concept of Chevron deference was even officially recognized by the court as applying to IRS regulations. So, I mean, it's more complicated than it seems on the surface. And it may end up being the case that the court will just say, well, look, 
in the context where we think it makes sense to apply these canons of construction, like on really technical legal questions or when it seems like the agency's thought something through, then we'll apply them. But when it seems like the agency hasn't done its homework and it's just statutory interpretation, which we do all the time, um, we might just step in. And that could be effectively what's happening already. All right. Well, let's move on to the very riveting opinions that came from the Supreme Court this week. <laughs> yeah, in lieu of a sleeping pill. <laughs> yeah. First up is Sturgeon versus Frost. Justice Kagan tells Alaskans, get your hovercraft out of storage. So this is a, a unanimous opinion by Justice Kagan, and the court held that the Nation River in Alaska's Yukon-Charlie Rivers National Preserve is not public land for purposes of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, uh, reversing the Ninth Circuit for a second time in this case. Uh, so so basically what this means is that uh, a, a National Park Service regulation that banned the use of hovercraft in federal preservation areas does not apply to the Nation River. And so uh, individuals such as John Sturgeon, the petitioner in this case, and many other Alaskans who, who like to uh, hunt, hunt moose using hovercraft are able to do so. Uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote a concurrence joined by Justice Ginsburg explaining that the court's opinion should not be read to eliminate the Park Service's regulatory over out-of-park non-public areas when doing so is necessary to protect in-park public areas, such as, uh, you know, that they would be allowed to ban pollution in the Nation River because it could affect other other areas under uh, federal authority. Uh, so, Will, do you have any any thoughts? Uh, are you in, are you going to go get a hovercraft and, and head up to the Nation River? I am not. Um, you know, I know there was a lot of debate about that at my house, but I am not. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, now I uh, I think the one thing to sort of take away from this is that Alaska special. And <laughs> um, I was I was struck at how much detail um, the opinion went into with regard to Alaska's entry into the union and the sort of unique rules around mm-hmm. how to regulate Alaska and lands. Um, Alaska special. And we'll kind of see, you know, whether or not there are broader implications of the case in light of that. I, it's not clear to me. So next up is Sudan versus Harris. In an 8-1 decision by Justice Alito, the court held that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act requires that serving civil process by mail on a foreign state must be sent to the foreign minister's office in the home country rather than to the country's embassy in the United States. So this case involves the victims of the USS Cole bombing from the year 2000. They sued Sudan, alleging that it had provided material support for al-Qaeda for the bombing. So both the original service packet and the default judgment after Sudan failed to appear in court were addressed to Sudan's Minister of Foreign Affairs at the Sudanese embassy here in Washington, and a signed receipt was returned. But uh, this week, the Supreme Court said that's not good enough. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act allows serving civil process on a foreign state by a mailing that is, quote, addressed and dispatched to the head of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the foreign state concerned. Uh, So the court said that the most natural reading of this language is that the service must be mailed directly to the foreign minister's office in the foreign state. Justice Thomas dissented writing that, you know, while the majority's bright line rule may be attractive from a policy perspective, the text of the statute uh, doesn't specify or preclude the use of any particular address. Instead, it only requires that the packet be sent to a particular person. Will, do you have any thoughts on that one? 
Um, well, yes. Um, I, th I think there, there's maybe a, maybe one of the animating reasons why there was only one dissenter was that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is something that has a wide range of applicability to a lot of multinational corporations that do business in the United States and uh, through subsidiaries or affiliated entities. And there have been efforts in more recent years by the court to want to try to make sure that the rules by which you could essentially bring a foreign sovereign, uh, in other words, like a, an arm or instrumentality of another government who seems like a private actor, uh, into the hail them into court in the United States, that the rules be really clear. Mm -hmm. um, we saw this in uh, several, and I think... Before 2000, it was between, I forget the exact year, but there was a case, uh, I think between 2005, 2015, that said that if you wanted to bring a cause of action against a foreign sovereign, the complaint had to be based upon the foreign sovereign's activity in the United States. And there are a number of exceptions, a number of different contexts based on contract law or tort law, but the the goal with that opinion almost was to try to create like a sort of similar here, a sort of bright line, clear threshold question type rule about uh, whether or not the foreign sovereign's even implicated. And I think that's probably reflective of the kind of comedy interests that the court can tend to take into account when foreign related either actors or statutes involving extraterritorial application of U.S. law are at issue. There's just a sensitivity to um, having a multi-layered, factored, complicated analysis when someone in another country who's affiliated with the country's government uh, could end up being hailed into court and held responsible. Um, so I, I could see that kind of comedy interest and the need for clarity, given comedy, uh, to be to be an animating factor here. That's kind of what I had my reaction to the the result. And then finally, the court uh, decided Lorenzo versus SEC. This was a six-two opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer. Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in this case, uh, and Justice Thomas dissented, joined by Gorsuch. Uh, so the majority held that uh, a defendant can be charged with violating federal law bar barring fraudulent securities schemes if he distributed but not did not make false statements. So here the, yeah. the petitioner sent emails at his boss's direction. So the issue was whether the petitioner could be held liable if he's not the maker of these uh, of, of these false statements. The court held that the applicable SEC regulation was broad enough to include the dissemination of false or misleading information with the intent to defraud, even if the petitioner wasn't the maker of the statement. And Justice Thomas, in his dissent, uh, wrote that the majority's decision blurs the line between <clears throat> primary and secondary liability in fraudulent misstatement cases. And he would have held that the petitioner's conduct did not amount to a primary violation of the securities laws. So now... Moving on, Will, I want to talk for a few minutes about your uh, your career. So okay. first, let's talk about what, what you're currently doing. So you're an associate in the antitrust and litigation practice at Shearman. So I understand that you, you now have at least one uh, oral argument under your belt at the, the Fifth Circuit. So tell me, yeah. uh, tell me about your very first oral argument. Oh, man. Um, it, was a, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it... Um, <clears throat> 
Well, first of all, I was extremely grateful to even be given the opportunity. This was an important case for an important client who had a lot at stake, and to be entrusted with that kind of responsibility meant a lot to me, and it still does, and it's something I'll always be thankful and and grateful uh, for. It was also my first trip to New Orleans, um, and that was fun in its own right, and Mm -hmm. the John Minor Wisdom Courthouse that the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans resides in is a very august building, and it's really kind of interesting because you know you're you're in New Orleans and um, uh, all sorts of songs are being played at seven o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday for no apparent reason, <laughs> and and same thing with parades at five o'clock on a Monday for no apparent reason. Um, but then here is this beautiful courthouse that is it's truly. Uh, outside of the Supreme Court, probably the nicest courthouse I've ever been in. And I had a, a panel that ran the gambit in terms of styles. Uh, Judge Smith, uh, Judge Jerry Smith, um, Judge Stephen Higginson, and Judge Risa Barksdale. And I, uh, I, the, the best analogy I could give is sort of Will Ferrell in old school when he's debating James Carville, and he <laughs> gets up to the podium, has a sip of water, and then just does his best, and then everyone asks him afterwards, what happened, what happened? And he just goes, I don't know, I blacked out. Um, <laughs> that was very much uh, very much how I felt. I was very nervous until right up I got, right up until I got to the podium, and then I felt at ease, and uh, I think it went very well. We certainly we got a per curiam affirmance, which is what we were looking for. That was very important, and uh, I, it was it was a lot of fun. Something I I look back on, I look back on fondly. And uh, I was given a pin from the from the Fifth Circuit uh, to commemorate the occasion, and I've kept that, which has been very nice. Very nice. Well, hopefully someday you'll start collecting those white quills from the Supreme Court. I have heard. That would be really cool, too. That would be really cool. I'd love to rub uh, John Marshall's foot on the way in. (laughs) Uh, So you previously clerked for two judges. Uh, The first was uh, at at the Eastern District of Virginia, which uh, I understand is called the Rocket Docket. So tell me about that clerkship. Oh, man, what a a fun, uh, interesting experience. And you know, district court clerkships don't get talked about with the same frequency that circuit court clerkships or certainly Supreme Court clerkships get talked about. But I will say that if you are interested in, in uh, not to sound condescending, in being a real litigator and actually <laughs> trying cases, uh, district court clerkships are extremely invaluable because you are going to see the gambit of everything, of of motions, of discovery, of all kinds of cases from, I mean, we had a, we had a case involving an injunction about someone who lost their dog to uh, <laughs> national security cases that you've read about in the news. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that makes the Eastern District of Virginia such a great court is that it has in its jurisdiction um, the the Pentagon, uh, many aspects of the national security apparatus, the CIA, and then it also has the Patent Office, and then also it's in Virginia, which has got a lot of interesting issues related to the defense industry, and then also just we, uh, Virginia politics can sometimes take on a national role. We had a case involving elections um, the year I was there. And then also you just, because it's a district court, I mean, there's no filter. You get everything. And so you'll get the, you know, the, the crazy cases where you just have to roll your eyes sometimes and wonder, wow, this, this person and I, we, we live on the same planet. That's amazing. Um, and, and, so, and so you really, it was a fun experience to learn a lot. And I remember my judge said at the end of the clerkship that you probably didn't, uh, you probably don't know how much you learned 
and you'll only know once you actually get out and practice. And that's really true. Uh, just giving a sense of instincts about what would work before a judge, about how to react to the myriad situations that come up in litigation all the time, because every day is a new day on the district court. I mean, on the Court of Appeals, it's sort of, you know, get the briefs, read them, research the cases, write the bench memo, get ready for argument, draft the opinion, rinse and repeat. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the district court, every day is a new day and something new is happening. And that was a fun learning experience. And the other thing I'll say about that that was cool was um, I clerked for a, a Reagan judge and the Eastern District of Virginia has a very high number of, of Reagan judges. And so they had been on the court for a long time. They had a great level of respect for its reputation as the rocket docket. There's a saying in Virginia that um, you only get a continuance in the Eastern District uh, for a death in the family, specifically your own. <laughs> um, so they, they took that seriously, and they took the court's reputation uh, to encourage settlements and look out for litigants as opposed to lawyers seriously. And I really respected that, and I still do. That's great. So then you went on to clerk for Judge Janice Rogers-Brown on the D.C. Yeah. Circuit. So tell me about some of the highlights of that clerkship. Oh, I mean, every day was a highlight. I Because uh, every day I got to say good morning to Judge Brown. <laughs> and I uh, uh, that was, Judge Brown has been one of my heroes since I uh, went to law school. I remember meeting her in law school. And the idea that I got to spend a year at her side talking about everything with her, working through her, going through the struggles with her. It was an honor and something I will never forget and I'm always grateful for. Uh, she was great to the clerks. She still is. She refers to, uh, if you have kids, she'll send the kids birthday cards on their birthday. She refers to them as her grand clerks. Oh, and, that's uh, sweet. Uh, in fact, um, my, my daughter, Evelyn, my oldest, uh, she enjoys Judge Brown so much that when she told me a few days ago that she has a work bag like four years old, you don't have a work bag. But um, I said, "Oh, really?" And 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 where do you where do you want to work when you get bigger? And she said, "For Judge Brown." And uh, I mean, yeah, she's just a wonderful person, and she's she's proof that um, that great people, people who get to really high statures, uh, can also be good people. And uh, she's she's living proof of that, and I'm so grateful to have worked with her. So uh, Judge Brown has now retired from the D.C. Circuit. Um, That's a loss for the country. Definitely. Uh, but a well-deserved retirement. <laughs> yes, um, and I'm glad she's, she's, uh, she's still out there active, giving speeches and mm -hmm. passing on her insights. Uh, that's extremely needed. So did she have any traditions with her clerks? I, I've heard about, you know, daily runs with Judge Wilkinson or a pancake eating contest with Judge Wesley. Uh, did Judge Brown have anything like that with her clerks? Well, we all took a trip at the end of the term uh, to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, to see the uh, Independence Hall and then the new um, museum uh, next to the next to Independence Hall about for the American Revolution, which was really cool. Uh, but the thing Judge Brown always did was, and I really appreciated this. She always brought in food. <laughs> <laughs> she was she's a great baker, a great cook in general, and always brought in treats and. Uh, it had become clear throughout the course of the clerkship that uh, at least two of my co-clerks had not seen the movie My Cousin Vinny. And so we just decided that we would have an in-chambers movie day and watch My Cousin Vinny and Judge Brown brought the snacks. And that was fantastic. 
<laughs> That's really surprising to get this far in your legal career without having seen my cousin Vinny. They they had more important things to focus on, but now they they have uh, now that we've all seen it. So <laughs> and we got to see it together, which was fun. That's great. Well, one question before we head into Supreme trivia. One final question. Yes. So, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick, and what would you talk about? Hmm. Well, uh, probably I'd have to narrow it down to either Justice Robert Jackson because he was the last Supreme Court justice to not go to law school and uh, nevertheless is lauded for his writing. And I think that's a great sign of just how the profession is open to the talents and open to people of good character who um, who live out the values they say they're going to live out and work hard. Uh, and then also uh, the first Justice Harlan, but that's just because he's such an interesting figure. I mean, he's rightly known for his dissent, his excellent dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm-hmm. But he was also uh, derided by his more sophisticated colleagues on the court as being the last of the tobacco-spitting justices <laughs> and and being criticized as someone said who sat with him said, Harlan goes to bed at night with one hand on the Constitution and the other hand on the Bible, and he sleeps the sweet sleep of the just. <laughs> and that was meant as a criticism, but honestly, I'd like to meet someone who does that sort of thing. And uh, Definitely. he he also, I think it's interesting, he was the only Southerner on the court, and he dissented in Plessy. Meanwhile, the majority opinion is written by the one justice in Supreme Court history who has the rather interesting distinction of getting a law degree from both Harvard and Yale. <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Starry Decisis edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest, Will. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. First question. What does the Latin phrase stare decisis et non quieta movere, pardon uh, any Latin scholars out there if I butchered the pronunciation, what does that translate to in English? Isn't it let the decision stand? Yes. To stand by by things decided, something along those lines. To stand by things decided. Yes. Okay. Well done. Okay. Second question. Close enough for government work. Oh, yeah, Definitely. When did stare decisis enter the Anglo-American legal tradition? As a term or like as a concept? Uh, kind of both. Okay. If you can um, give me a century, just a ballpark. I would say the 18th century. I mean, I, I think that's right. So uh, it's actually the 16th century. Although okay. there's more starry decisis for starry decisis. Yeah. Although it, it may have had earlier roots in Roman law. I found an 1893 Cornell article uh, that says the concept was articulated by the court of the King's bench in a 1584 case. And here's what the court said. Where upon the first argument, it was adjudged for the defendant for they said that those things which have so often been adjudicated ought to rest in peace. So I will uh, be sure to share that 1893 article uh, on Twitter with listeners. Okay. Sounds great. Third question. And this, this one is, uh, is a multiple choice question. So I'll, I'll read all the choices before you um, have to give an answer. Okay. Okay. Which is not one of the guideposts that the Supreme Court will consider in deciding whether or not to overrule a previous case? How much it is relied upon? whether it's a workable rule, whether there has been change in how the justices and society understand the facts underlying that decision, 
And fourth, uh, whether it conflicts with the original public meaning of the Constitution. I'm going to go with change in the underlying facts. No, it's actually the the fourth. I mean, if oh well, that's horrifying. If we were talking about <laughs> Justice Clarence Thomas's view of precedent, then he would say, "Let's strip it all back down to the original well, meaning." But that's true. sometimes compromises have to be made. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> okay, fourth question: What case is considered by some to be super precedent? Um. I believe that would be Roe versus Wade. That is correct. Whether whether or not we agree that it's and, super precedent. And, and I, I, I distinctly recall that being said in Justice Alito's confirmation hearing and him saying something. He's like, well, whether it's a super precedent or a super duper precedent, yeah. the, it, the same principles apply. Yes. To stare and it seems like the only time we hear about this so-called category of super precedents is uh, from our, our friends, the Democrats in the Senate. They like to bring this up at Supreme Court confirmation hearings, noting how many times Roe versus Wade has been affirmed. OK, mm-hmm. fifth and final question. And this is looking at uh, at the Supreme Court since World War II. Under which chief justice has the court had the highest rate of overruling cases? And I'll tell you the four chief justices. Uh, so you have them all at the ready. So there's the Warren Court, the Burger Court, the Rehnquist Court, and the Roberts Court. So which one had the highest rate of overruling cases? I think it might be the Burger Court. That is correct. Yeah. As of uh, last term, so this is not including anything that happens this term, the Burger Court had the highest rate uh, with an average of three cases per term. It also had the highest rate of striking down laws with an average of 12 and a half per term. Uh, the Roberts Court actually comes in last uh, with overruling an average of one case per term. And all of these statistics come courtesy of Jonathan Adler over at the Volokh Conspiracy. So I'll share that, uh, that article as well. Well, Will, I think you did a great job on Starry Decisis Supreme Trivia. And thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.